I'll do it over. We'll start it from here. <laughs> okay. Welcome everyone to our podcast. My name is Ryan. I'm here with my co-host Levite. We are both people who work in the social justice industrial complex and our podcast is all about talking about and discussing and trying to figure out that the social justice industrial complex, the, the industry we both work in. Hair and I hate it. Oh, okay, we're on now. We're me fixing my hair. Right. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll edit this all out. Don't, don't, don't Doug, edit it. this out. You don't need to see how the sausage is made, okay? Yeah. So, yeah, so we wanted to talk about exiting the vampire castle because this is an article that I think is, you know, for a lot of people on the left, especially kind of younger people on the left and people who, you know, are maybe kind of, you know, have kind of come of age in this sort of like DSA, Jacobin influence sphere of the left, like a real touchstone. It's definitely something that I think has been referenced, you know, repeatedly on, for example, the Chapo Trap House podcast in particular by former host Amberly Frost, but um, you know, just comes up quite a lot as a reference point. And, uh, and obviously the work of Mark Fisher has only grown in its overall reputation since his, his tragic death in 2017, you know, so his work generally is influential, but this is maybe one of his most kind of discussed pieces. The Wikipedia article on it said it was both like his, I think it was like his most loved, but most hated piece or something like really? that. Which I find kind of strange because I I don't know if I've ever really encountered in the wild anyone who hates it. That's what um, I was just gonna say. I've never met. I've even sent it to people that I feel like, you know, have been struggling with some of the ideas that he talks about in the in, uh, um, in the in the essay. And you know, these are people on the, very deep on the social justice left, and they resonate with it. Maybe at the time there was more of a kind of negative reaction to it. Uh, I'm sorry, um, my hair is crazy. Um, hashtag Jewish girl problems. All right. Anyway, I just want to acknowledge that. Yes, I know. Playing with her a lot. No, <laughs> no worries. No, <laughs> look, you don't have to apologize for being Jewish on this. <laughs> but um, but uh, where to start? First of all, it, it's it's you know it's from a time which in some ways is hugely recognizable like obviously he's you know the one word version of it is he's kind of critiquing or complaining about what's going on in terms of like left twitter which like that still exists and that you know twitter still exists and so forth so in some ways a recognizable time but in other ways like really different and the yeah a lot of the concerns that it describes you know i mean some very specifically like something like the people's assembly which was you know he's quite hopeful of in the piece but i think didn't really go anywhere and was kind of like a post-occupy thing in the uk um you know owen jones who still exists and i think is still a, a figure that divides people let's put it that way on the british left um, and has gone through kind of different iterations in terms of his his standing. I know that a lot of there was a point where a lot of the people who were kind of politically close 
to Jeremy Corbyn and, you know, hopeful of his leadership of the Labor Party kind of really, I think, detested Owen Jones. But now maybe he's kind of returned to being part of sort of like at least the mainstream of the kind of British radical left or kind of, you know, like a person within the mainstream of British politics who's kind of seen as attached to the radical left. But yeah, and then, I mean, one of the wildest things, which I had more or less completely forgotten about the article was how much he talked about Russell Brand. <laughs> Uh, which is interesting because so I mean, at that time, Russell Brand was still pretty famous and had been in a couple pretty big movies, like within maybe like if this is 2013, like I think movies like Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Get Him to the Greek or like from a couple of years before that, if I'm not screwing that up. And he, he was married to Katy Perry, who also like even saying the phrase Katy Perry in the year 2022 is kind of like weird because she's not, she's not really like a pop star anymore. It's kind of like a, already kind of a belongs to a different era or kind of a bit of a footnote, but she was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, when, you know, when they got married and it was a big, it was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's not from LA right? she's from like, the Inland Empire or Orange County or something like that. I, I am normally very up to date on all my local LA native celebrities, but I can tell you, I know absolutely nothing about Katy Perry. Oh, the second, <laughs> I think she's from Santa Barbara actually. Okay. Oh, um, you know what? I do think I remember that. Yeah. 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 So not, not LA. Um, but uh, yeah. So the stuff on Russell Brand is interesting. And then obviously Russell Brand, again, I'm not, super knowledgeable about this but i feel like you would not see like an identifiable kind of marxian left figure like mark fisher writing so positively about russell brand now and i don't totally have a sense of where his politics are i know he's kind of like anti-lockdown i think like anti-vaccines to some extent but i'm not really sure where he's at on a lot of things but it definitely he's probably like kind of no longer as identifiably left wing as he once was. I think that he's kind of part of that like new agey, like maybe okay, it could be wrong. So I don't know. Uh, but I, what, from what I can gather, like that new agey kind of Q adjacent. Oh, know, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like kind of, conspiratorial, whatever. Now that we're into the presidency of Joe Biden, what is the role of QAnon and the ideas upon which it is built. There has been an awakening. Have you felt it? Supporters of QAnon were out in full force at present. It's called QAnon, a fringe conspiracy theory that some political analysts have likened to an online religion. I know if you're a person who's into those theories, you'll say uh, it's not a conspiracy because there's proof. Well, in this video, we'll look at what there is tangible proof for, some of which is pretty nefarious and troubling and shows where the concentration of power is and what is speculative or as it would be referred to by detractors of QAnon, baseless theories but i still think he does talk about issues like about the working class but he's definitely like a much more controversial figure now than when the piece was originally written for sure yeah and obviously like the the uh the impetus for fisher's writing the piece according to him was that brand was even controversial at the time Mm -hmm. um which is again kind of interesting because 
I remember, I mean, I remember him justifiably getting criticized for kind of like a weird stunt that he did with this guy, Jonathan Ross, who I don't think is well known in the U S but is like, or at least was like a big deal in the UK who like hosted like a, like a talk show basically. And they, I think it's the two of them and maybe somebody else. They were like calling some old actor who like didn't pick up. So they just left a series of escalatingly obscene phone messages for him. And like, I guess like Russell Brand in his kind of, you know, pre-marriage days had like hooked up with the guy's adult granddaughter. So they made like a pretty crude reference to that on the phone. It's like, you know, it's bad. It's like not like, you know, you shouldn't do that to people and talk about, you know, uh, your romantic partners in that way. Now, men, uh, Andrew Sex. Don't call him Manuel, that's just really bad. Call him manners. Andrew Sex. Oh, I apologise for that. Andrew Sex. He's an idiot. Look, Andrew Sex, I've got respect for you and your lineage and progeny. Yeah, Never know, let that be questioned. Don't hint. I wasn't hinting. Why did that come across as a hint? Because you know what you're talking about. Now, when you were he doing... He fucked your granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, 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 right I'm sorry. I'm, right I'm sorry. I apologise. Andrew, I apologise. It's still on the answer. It's on the answer phone. Well, I can't help it. You were talking about it and it was in my head. I apologise. Jonathan! I got excited. What did oh, I say? I remember that was like something he was criticised for. And I guess, you know, uh, Fisher seems to kind of acknowledge some other kind of sexist language that Russell Brand had used or whatever. But yeah, so basically he was controversial at the time, but I think now even more, even more so. So rereading this essay, I really did, you know, I, I still think it's good. And I still think it's kind of like a clear statement of a problem that, you know, that was present at the time and persists to this very day. He didn't know how right he was. Um, I just want to let everyone know that I did exit the vampire's castle. It was in 2013 when I read the essay that I really had to like self-reflect for a minute. Um, be like, what, what's happening? <laughs> like, so, um, and I think it's, yeah, more true today than it was when it was originally written. Um, and even though it's like, you know, specifically talking about Russell Brand or left-wing Twitter, I think you can kind of even like take out the Russell Brand part entirely and just read when he starts talking about the vampire's castle, describing it. Um, and left-wing Twitter can be anything at this point, right? We were connecting it to this article that was in the Intercept by Ryan Grimm uh, called The Elephant in the Zoom, uh, which is a very, very, very long article, um, specifically talking about how, quote, progressive organizations have kind of become, uh, they, they, they are, they're, they're so entrenched in their own internal conflict and, and turmoil between like individual people who work there that they can't actually do what they're supposed to do. They're not, they're not able to advocate if they're like, let's say like the ACLU and they're not able to advocate for, you know, free speech or he specifically talks about um, this, the Sierra club, which seems like a pretty kind of innocuous kind of moderate neutral environmental protection group uh, you know, has been kind of, uh, you know, destroying itself with these kind of, um, self-regulating social justice, um, 
like causes within the group itself to the point where like they've had to close groups for like weeks before because they have to like settle what's going on between workers versus like actually having a common goal and going out and creating a lasting systemic change. I think that the two articles, although written almost a decade apart, are pretty much in the same kind of vein universe, right? Um, kind of talking about the the ineffectiveness of the left, um, the internal, like how we destroy each other, um, as opposed to like like Mark Fisher says in Exiting the Vampire's Castle, we do capital's work for them. Mm -hmm. Like we're doing it, or they they can just take a step back and watch as we burn it down ourselves. Yeah, and the list he gives of organizations, the Sierra Club, Demos, the American Civil Liberties Union, Color of Change, the Movement for Black Lives, Human Rights Campaign, Time's Up, the Sunrise Movement, many other organizations, even the National Autobahn Society. There's maybe a way, you know, especially maybe some people on the right would kind of say those are all kind of the left, the kind of cultural left to some extent or whatever, but very few of those are kind of self-consciously left-wing groups in the way that, you know, Fisher was writing about the People's Assembly and writing about mm-hmm. kind of, you know, self-identified like leftist, Marxist, anarchists online. Um, so it's, I feel like this is, the phenomenon has really spread. The kind of, the same things have become much more prominent in real life, I guess, as well as just the internet. and there's an interesting quote here from Grimm that I wanted to read. Twitter, as the saying goes, may not be real life, but in a world of remote work, Slack very much is. And Twitter, Slack, Zoom, and the office space, according to interviews with more than a dozen current and former executive directors of advocacy organizations, are now mixing in a way that is no longer able to be ignored by a progressive movement that wants organizations to be able to function. And that's why I I think that even though Mark Fisher is specifically talking about Twitter, um, I think it's like a much bigger issue. Twitter's kind of like this microcosm or this like Petri dish, right? Of what's happening everywhere throughout the progressive leftist, Marxist, anarchist um, world, which, you know, technically, and, you know, Mark Fisher says this in his essay too, we don't all have to agree on everything, but we should be able to have like these kind of core uh beliefs that we can we can work together on to fight capital and to fight these systemic issues but instead we're too busy you know making sure that uh and i and i don't mean this disrespectfully but like you know a full four hours on what your pronouns are in the office right um you know it's like uh the white fragility effect right because you know, Robin DeAngelo's book is just like a corporate training tool. It's not really about um, actual racial justice or systemic racial justice. It's about like the workplace. And that's where I feel like and Ryan Grimm talks about in his article, like that's what they're more concerned about. What's the dynamics within the workplace um, as opposed to like fighting real systemic injustice in the community or you know, in your world. Like, I mean, the ACLU at this point, like, I don't really know what they stand for anymore. 
it's certainly not free speech, you know. And Grimm gets into that, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, and it, so as we've already mentioned, like I'm not an American, but I'm a Canadian. I'm pretty familiar with the American context. And when you learn about kind of free speech in the U.S., which is often seen as being kind of, you know, more rigidly protected than it is in some other Western countries um, because of the First Amendment, one of the kind of examples, and I'm pretty sure this was in like textbooks we had in school and stuff like that. Um, You know, of course, in Canada, this is kind of, they could probably seen as like a bit of a bad thing. It's like we're better because we have like hate speech laws or whatever. But they give you the example of this kind of famous Skokie case where it's the 80s. Skokie, Illinois is like a suburb of Chicago that had like a large population of Jewish people generally and like Holocaust survivors specifically. And there was this like Nazi group that wanted to like parade through the the municipality. Um, And the ACLU with, I think, like mostly or entirely Jewish lawyers working on the case went all the way to the Supreme Court to uphold their right to, I guess, freedom of speech and also freedom of assembly, right, in terms of physically being in public and marching. I don't think it's a bad thing to say. Like, people would, like, that's kind of canonical free speech absolutism, right? You're willing to take positions that you detest and still, uh, you know, accord them the same right to free speech and, and other kind of civil liberties that you accord to views you support, um, which... Basically, the Ryan Grimm article goes into why a similar stance was not taken by the ACLU with regard to, like, the Charlottesville, uh, I forget what their stupid name for it was, but, like, the Tiki Torch thing and stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, I do not believe in a word you say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. And I think ultimately, too, it, what what's even more upsetting about all this is it actually ends up backfiring. And we know this, right? Because... Now Alex Jones is like a martyr, (laughs) like, you know, like he died for his cause and now he's more popular than ever. I mean, like, I feel like that happens to Holocaust deniers in Europe all the time because they'll do it on purpose. Right. They will publish books um, in places where it's illegal to deny the Holocaust so that they can really like, you know, die for their cause, essentially go to prison and then they become like super popular. So this doesn't work, first of all, like it just makes the ideas that much sexier, right? Um, it, it, it just uh, cre- makes the, uh, it, it makes the questions of like, well, what are you so afraid of? Why can't we talk about this? You know, actually yeah. seem like a real legitimate thing to say. And it just ends up cr- like popularizing the ideas, I think more than actually like using facts and and real debate and protests to destroy those ideas, which is what we should be doing, right? And of course, like, that doesn't mean that we're advocating that, like, you can yell fire in a crowded theater. Like, obviously, there are limits in that way, but I don't think that the that the, the positions that the ACLU has been taking recently are are even close to that anyway. Um, and, it's, and it's become a broader problem on the left. I mean, like, there's that viral video that I always wished was fake of the DSA where it takes them like literally an hour to even get started on their meeting because they're so busy deciding like how, what, what level of noise they're going to have and how this makes this person feel. And like, it's almost like we've become a parody of ourselves and it's this type of thing. And this is what Mark Fisher and 
Ryan Grimm are talking about that are just going to perpetuate, like we'll never ever have any victories. Like this is, I think that, that we are in a much worse space than we were when Mark Fisher wrote that essay. Um, and I think it's just getting worse and worse. How much of this do we think relates to, like one thing that I think Ryan Grimm doesn't maybe state explicitly because it's just kind of obvious, at least in the context of his article, but I think for us we want to kind of pull it out a bit, is the organizations he's writing about were overwhelmingly talking about some type of professional. Like a bunch of them are organizations that have a bunch of lawyers like the ACLU. Others have, you know, probably people with, uh, you know, masters of public administration degrees or kind of masters of public policy type degrees, um, which is, you know, hasn't been maybe codified into like a licensed profession yet, but has kind of become one. Um, or people who kind of come from the sort of, you know, community organizer into kind of more executive position in a NGO pipeline. To what extent is this a, maybe a, a feature rather than a bug of the kind of professionalization of these activist causes? I think that's exactly what it is, right? Um, I, I can tell you that like um, where I work, one of the, a very popular thing to do is to talk about burnout, 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 self-care burnout, which I've, is also kind of draped in this social justice um, kind of veneer, right? Um, as opposed to like um, the, the reason that there's burnout is because we are working under basically like impossible conditions where we're given absolutely no resources. Like I've, I've talked about like the ambulance issue, right? Where I work that we can't get, um, if we're responding to a crisis and someone needs to go to the hospital and an ambulance, well, I mean, the longest I've ever waited for an ambulance is 13 hours, right? Um, they tell you, you can't go to the bathroom. They tell you that like, you can't leave the, the site of the, the crisis. And literally people were peeing in bottles, right? And they had the audacity to give us a burnout training about our own feelings um, and talking about like, you know, it's really hard um, I know that a lot of us are in pain about what happens, you know, for example, like the vicious murder of George Floyd. Um, and that's why you're feeling this way because it's just, a, it's, 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 there's, because of the systemic racism, because of um, the, you know, the stress you're under because of Roe being overturned or whatever, as opposed to like, I just want to be able to use the bathroom and I want like a timely ambulance response. And that would like dissipate my burnout a lot more. And, and I remember I, I said in the tr most recent training, I said, you know, these burnout trainings and these self quote self-care trainings seem a lot like you're putting the onus on us for these, the, 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 um, the mismanagement mistakes and outright complete not caring <laughs> by the bureaucrats in positions of power. Why is this my problem now? You know? And the response I got was basically like, I'll think about that. Thank you. And they're paying these like professionals to come train us. Right. So that when one of us like literally like has to go on stress leave for like, you know, fucking a year. Cause we're like, can't, you just can't take anymore. You're so sick of pissing in bottles or whatever. Uh, they don't have to pay you because they gave you the burnout training. 
Right. Yeah. And it's probably, I mean, there's some HR type or some lawyer who's come up with this as a preventative strategy and not even at your organization, like at a different organization five to seven years ago. And it's just kind of permeated out as like, well, this is what you do and blah, blah, blah. And then like, you know, just like doing like social media training or whatever for an organization. And it's just like, well, sooner or later, someone's going to tweet out some dumb BS on a corporate account or somebody's going to send a fucked up email to a coworker or whatever. But if we gave them the training, you know, and we had a policy, we can say, you know, we can kind of like avoid uh, liability for it. Right. I mean, it's probably especially pronounced because you live in the most litigious country on the planet. But I think it's true probably in, in every Western country and, and certainly in mine as well. I think it's definitely like a result of like these like professional schools and um, it's, it's a very like individualistic and uh, like, this is your individual problem way to um, kind of present these issues. Right. As opposed to like, we're in this together. This is a really hard time. Um, We're going to, you know, um, the job you have is almost impossible with the amount of resources we have. Um, and even just acknowledging that I think would relieve a lot of the coke burnout, but instead it's like, we live in like, uh, you know, it's like a weird, like black mirror episode where like, we know this is happening and this is the reason why. Um, but instead we have to sit and like talk about our feelings and like how, if you take a warm bath, maybe you'll feel better. And have you thought about exercising regularly? Cause that might, alleviate your stress levels and here you have three free eap uh you know employee assistance program uh therapy sessions on us you know exercising regularly like during the 13 hours you're waiting for right. minutes, if you like run right. on the spot do some downward dogs some cat cows you know like you can uh, you can turn the time into something that is going to benefit you rather than take away from your quality of life right and and of course the communities we serve would never have the means to like protest or like complain about the just absolutely horrible service they're receiving. Right. Cause who cares? So it's yeah. like double edged sword in that way. But you, you would think like in terms of material demands, like a movement could actually be making like, you know, make the ambulances not take 13 hours to get to, you know, fucking East LA or Palmdale or whatever uh, would be a good one that could go in there, like, as, you know, like something that would concretely improve people's lives. But you said another thing that, you know, so one thing that's interesting is the kind of potential critique that people could make of the article by Ryan Grimm is a lot of it focuses on talking to the executives of these organizations. And obviously like the, the dynamic that's described in the article is younger staffers who are often, you know, in the article to some extent kind of characterized kind of being like activists of a certain type. Uh, And I guess like woke, although a lot of people in the article shy away from that specific word, Um, you know, kind of younger staff, older management and having these kind of tensions. The interesting thing, and this maybe brings us back to Fisher who talks about how, you know, and other people have pointed this out, but how often we are kind of comfortable with language of identity, but resistant to discussing class is, you know, what like people are framing this as like, you know, for example, like 
the organization I'm working in is like shot through with like white supremacy. But could it also be, and especially in the kind of Zoom era, that the people have real complaints about their working conditions and real issues with management, you know, maybe even to some extent kind of conflict. I'm hesitant to call it a class conflict because I think everybody here is, you know, a part of the bourgeoisie slash PMC to, you know, more or less, but, um, you know, but instead it could exp express in this kind of more rhetorical ideological way, rather than, for example, just, we have these complaints with, uh, with our work conditions. Uh, yeah. And I kind of feel like he does put the blame a little bit on people who have legitimately have no control over their lives. And maybe that is one aspect where they might be able to feel like they have some control. Right. Um, so that, I think that is a legitimate criticism. I mean, you're literally asking the kind of bureaucrat on top, which, you know, and it's, it, I agreed with like the premise of the article. Um, but I do think it probably would have, uh, kind of made it a little more, um, a little, uh, like it would have been a more powerful piece had he spoken with people who are doing the work on the ground and asked them why this is happening. Um, I do think that, um, as someone who's worked in, like, I've worked in nonprofits and I've worked, you know, in government bureaucracy, obviously I work in a government bureaucracy now, um, you really feel like you have no control over your, your, like, physically, your own physical body sometimes, like, waiting for 13 hours is insane. Um, and so... I think that sometimes you want to grasp onto the one thing you may have control over. Um, and maybe the workplace like conflict, not that it's a good thing. Um, but like, maybe that's the one thing these, these people feel like they may be able to make a difference in because everything else just seems so overwhelming and impossible. I mean, and I think that's the Robin D'Angelo effect too, right? Uh, because she has made herself a total corporate tool for that. Um, she is like, like, I, I feel like they, they, in a way they do benefit from this dynamic, right? Because you don't have to like address these bigger systemic issues. If we can talk about, you know, fucking like, you know, individual, uh, conflicts between each other, which are probably have more to do with the fact that you're mistreated at work in general than necessarily like a, you know, systemic white supremacy within your organization um as a, you know you'd have to address like real class issues or like real issues of inequality but you know rob you can take this rob d'angelo training and then everything is fine yeah and even if you address these issues within the organization you're not doing anything for most people in society right like the right. you know the the people who for example the burden of white supremacy is going to fall hardest on are people that are poor people that are caught up in the justice system, you know, that kind of thing. Like if someone's arrived at a place where they're working at the national Autobahn society, you know, not to say they don't have any problems, but they've, they're immunized from a lot of the worst consequences of these things by, by the virtue of their position, their class position in society. Um, and yeah, whatever kind of redistribution or kind of like restructuring happens within that organization is going to, uh, you know, and 
you know, that's maybe an extreme example given how removed it is from a lot of things, but uh, you know, it's not going to change the, the world outside. It's certainly not going to change material conditions for, for people out there. Yeah. And I think people, I think that the powerful rely on this dynamic um, and that's what kind of Mark Fisher, I think that was like the main thesis of his masterpiece. Um, but I think Ryan Grimm to a lesser extent, but still was making a similar argument um, that you've kind of immobilized these uh, once powerful, I mean, sort of powerful organizations. It's certainly the ACLU, you know, um, that it kind of immobilized them into being able to do the thing that they're supposed to do. And this, you know, this article was published a week or two ago, I want to say. I'm just going to remind myself exactly when it was published. But, yeah, so this is June 13th, 2022. And he talks about the Guttmacher uh, Institute, uh, which is an abortion policy NGO. And, I mean, what happened about two weeks later, right? The the overturning of Roe, you've got this huge infrastructure, this huge constellation of groups that were supposedly, you know, the people were donating money to, right. To stop this thing from ever happening, you know, for basically since the 1970s, but especially in the past couple of years. And what else can you say? The mission not accomplished. Like they, you know, they, they just, fundamentally didn't deliver maybe on the state level in terms of, you know, a handful of states have a law enshrining it um, as a right. And so they're not really affected by the row thing. And then others have, you know, it's, it's legal in those states, although it's vulnerable to being banned by state house. And as I understand it, Pennsylvania is one of the places where this could happen pretty soon. And then obviously a bunch of states had these laws on the books that basically meant the second row got overturned. It abortion became completely illegal in those states so not successful, right? Not the, you know, whatever was going on internally at these groups. And I'm not saying anything about any specific group because I don't know. Uh, but looking at the outcome, looking at the results of what they were doing, it's not great. It's not a great track record for the like 50 odd years where this was supposedly the, the struggle they were devoting themselves to. Yeah. And I mean, like I said it when we talked to Freddie and like, maybe this is where I get conspiratorial too. It's like, I think it's by design. Like I really do. Like now the depth, I mean, what was the first thing Nancy Pelosi did when Roe got overturned? She sent out a fundraising email. It was you know? wild seeing, like I saw this on Twitter, people posting like screen captures of these like fundraising letters that like, probably got written a couple of weeks ago when the thing leaked. Exactly. And just were fired up. And they're just like, it's so, yeah, just so craven and so cynical on a basic investment thing. It's like, why would you ever give money to these people with their complete failure to deliver anything now? Anything. And, no, and no plan to deliver, right? Like the, you know, my understanding of your system is the court is spoken. They might reverse themselves, but not, until the composition of the court has changed pretty dramatically, uh, which is not going to happen because you, you know, they're as far as 
federal judges go, you had some pretty young and spry people there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, so going to be a while. Uh, if that if the if the strategy is to wait for the Supreme Court to reverse itself, I mean it could be another fifty years. Yeah. Which you don't need to donate to Nancy Pelosi for that. You should donate to cryogenics and get yourself frozen so you can come back in twenty seventy two and see if things are less fucked up in America at that point. Me and Walt Disney. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I maybe you know Democratic Party is the vampire's castle. Like I mean, like they literally are right. Like it's a self sustaining like organism you know dripping with like call-out culture and um systemic like social justice wokeness that is destroying any actual ability for real change or even just keeping the rights we used to have like it's like that bad like like i it, it, it seems like science fiction. It's so crazy. Like you literally have this party that's just like, give me money. And then you, out of fear, people do I understand why. I mean, they're really afraid of things that are happening all the time. I mean, like they said, like gay marriage and contraception are next. Like, I mean, Clarence Thomas said it, right? So, I mean, they, ha- they, they have proven themselves to be just like, uh, like a mouthpiece for kind of woke anger, but not, but not even anything like I, I can't even articulate it. It's just like, so uh, it's like absurd. It's just like, how is this real? How does this exist? It is like an episode of black mirror. Cause you just like keep funneling money. And then these zombies kind of look at you and they're like, give us more money, even though everything we said we would do would never happen. And in fact, you are in a much worse place than you were even a week ago, you know? Um, so I think that, it, you know, the, the Mark Fisher is a soothsayer of sorts. You know, he knew he saw something happening and I don't think it was even novel then though, but I think it's gotten like much worse now. No, because yeah. at that point, Twitter's like already like what, five, six years old. Yeah. A little more than that maybe technically, but like people have been using it pretty regularly for a couple of years at that point. It's still novel. Like I think he's still, He no, he doesn't put Twitter storms in quotes, but he puts left wing Twitter in quotes, which I guess gives you a sense of how that was still kind of, I guess, a relatively new new concept at the time. But um, yeah, no, it does it does seem, and you know, maybe kind of a downer note to end on. But one of the, probably the weaker points of of Fisher's piece is the kind of final paragraph where he's talking about social media and kind of what he thinks people should do. And he says, you know, some very good things about kind of trying to institute, you know, good practices that kind of work against these impulses and so forth. Um, You know, we need to learn or relearn how to build comradeship and solidarity instead of doing capital's work for it by condemning and abusing each other. Good point. Um, and then says we need to think very strategically about how you use social media, which nobody, I think, has really done for the most part. Like mostly, people are just on it, and um, you know, I'm not really faulting people because it's to some extent it's probably like being like like saying like don't use it. Probably to a lot of people would be the equivalent of saying don't have a smartphone or don't have a car. Like this stuff is to some extent just part of 
the infrastructure of our lives at this point. Um, although at the same time, if people cannot use it, I do think it might be better in a lot of ways. And so Fisher, yeah, like a point that I thought was kind of weak, or at least seems weak, almost a decade later, Fisher says, um, you know, correctly, social media, it's enemy territory dedicated to the reproduction of capital. But this doesn't mean that we can't occupy the train and start to use it for the purposes of producing class consciousness. Well, that, that does not age well. <laughs> I don't know if it, and I'm not, again, I'm not like faulting him, but you know, that's optimistic and that's positive. And I think, you know, he was obviously somebody not just recommending that, but also trying to do that in his own work. Um, but not really borne out. We, we have a much, there's, there's a bigger and possibly more diverse and diffuse left-wing Twitter than there was when he wrote this piece. Not sure. Not sure it's, using Twitter for the purposes of producing class consciousness. And it's, it's interesting because if we were having this conversation, maybe in 2017, people might be more like, yeah, you know, like it's being borne out and look at the way it's being borne out by um, 2017, 2018, you know, by like the ascendancy of Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie and stuff like that. But uh, now I would say probably not. Not so much. Agreed. I think that uh, he def- that was maybe the most wrong prediction he made in that in his essay. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it's a really good strategy. <laughs> Clearly, that's not worked. <laughs> so, I mean, class consciousness is not a, it's, it's like still a dirty word on the left. I think to a lot of people. So 